Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you've done Good evening everyone and welcome to Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Radio Show number 3117 My name is Annie Marges and I'm one of your co-hosts for tonight's show And before we begin, I'm going to read the mission statement for NASCA. NASCA is the group which brings us this show. NASCA stands for National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And this is the mission statement. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, CSA. Presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And this episode of Stop Child Abuse Now It's a Tuesday-Thursday episode, and that means that it's an open mic question and answer episode. We uh, open the mic to all of you to give us a call and come in and talk and tell a little bit about your story and ask questions of our panelists. The phone number for you to call if you'd like to participate is 646. 595-2118. I'll repeat that. 646-595-2118. And Victoria will answer the phone and welcome you on. So I hope you call in. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we usually have a special uh, survivor professional to be our co-host, and tonight 
our survivor professional is not here. Um, so hopefully that person will show up. And when when she does, then we'll turn it over to her. But in her absence right now, um, I thought that it might be a good topic, it being Valentine's Day, to talk about relationships and how being a survivor, an adult survivor of child abuse, affects our relationships, our love relationships, is what I'm thinking about. But I suppose it affects all of them. And to that end, I'm just going to read a little bit that I found on the Internet about it. And then we will uh, open to you and your questions and comments. And again, the phone number to call is 646-595-2118. Okay. So I'm just going to read a little bit here. The trauma of childhood abuse can have long-lasting repercussions that affect your understanding of yourself and the world around you. For many, the effects of abuse manifest in dysfunctional interpersonal relationships as a result of attachment disruptions at pivotal points of childhood development. By examining the impact of childhood abuse on interpersonal relationships and the role of therapy in healing, you can gain a greater understanding of both your experiences and the possibilities for recovery. And then it goes on with a little story. My earliest memories are of being scared, says Tess. When people talk about carefree childhoods, I cannot relate. The experience of growing up without fear is very foreign to me. Tess, now 31, experienced abuse at the hands of her father from a young age. While her mother didn't participate directly in the abuse, she also didn't intervene for fear that her husband's anger would turn against her. Essentially, I was left to cope with these overwhelming experiences by myself. No one outside the family knew, and I was too frightened to tell anyone, she explains. Part of me just assumed no one would care, and another part was scared of what would happen if they did. While Tess was outwardly silent about her abuse, internally she clung to an escape narrative that hinged on the freedom of adulthood. As she packed her bags for college, she knew she would never return to her parents' home. Walking out that door was exhilarating, she tells me, but in many ways I carried the abuse with me. It informed how I saw myself and how I interacted with other people. For many years, it stripped me of the ability to have a a healthy relationship, and it took a long time to truly become free. And I'll stop there. There's there's more. Um, It goes on for quite a ways, and so we'll just dive in and out of it and talk about what we've read. 
And no one has called in yet, so I'll repeat the number. If you're not sure if you should call in, yes, you should. Okay, so the phone number is 646-595-2118. And Victoria is on with us. Victoria, would you like to comment on what I've read so far? Sure. I also want to mention, because some people listen to this um, after the fact or whatever, that um, we do have these Blood Tech radio shows. Um, I'm just going to say my time because I don't know anybody else's, but 7, 8.30 Central. But we're on Monday through Friday night. And anybody can call the same number, um, which is 646-595-2118, and uh, be part of the discussion, um, be part of when we do have um, professionals on the other nights or survivors, um, you are welcome to come on and um, ask questions, um, make comments, and uh, we really, really would love to have everybody who listens to the NASCA Blog Talk radio shows to come on and participate. It really makes a big difference. Um, the, the more the merrier. <laughs> but I just want to let people know it is, it is five nights a week, and uh, um, this is like, so um, she said scan 3117, so that means this is the 3,117th episode. Just got in tongue. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, there's um, a lot of episodes to watch, so uh, listen to I should say, not watch. Yeah, Bill's always kidding. He says, see you on the radio. <laughs> Time he said, like, hmm? on the radio. <laughs> on the radio, yeah. <laughs> but no relationships. Um, well, I'll tell you what, my, um, my mom gave me on my first birthday, and she said, I kissed you on the forehead and said, this is the best birthday present I'll ever give you. And she sent me and my two brothers. My one brother was a year and a half. The other was two and a half years old, older than me, almost exact dates. And uh, on a trip with our babysitter to Minnesota. And I found out later in uh, therapy that, um, which is similar to what I think you said, but um, she she called it abandonment issues. And so say I'd get in a relationship and I'd be so afraid that person was going to leave me, you know, that that mm-hmm. I got to a point where I feared it so much that that I was the one that left. You know, I don't want to wait till that other shoe drops kind of. And and so I would just come out and tell a guy right away, you know, I don't care, you know, I'll I'll see you for a while, whatever. But once you say the love word, I'm gone, you know, because to me, love meant I owe them something, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, um, it just, yeah, it was a bad word for me. It was not a good word, and we just don't know what words are going to trigger certain people, you know. And that was a big trigger word. Or trust me, you mentioned trust. Trust me, it usually meant I'm going to hurt you, but, you know, just just submit, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. so that's kind of what that means, you know. And, and I love you means now you owe me or you have to do something that, you know, like like my grandma would say, um, well, don't you love me? And, you know, if I wouldn't want to do something, you know, even the simplest things, you know. Well, don't you love me? And, uh, yeah, I love you. Well, then why aren't you doing that? You know, and yeah. uh, it, it, it being a manipulation tool, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, unconditional love was not something I grew up with. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in my 
my experience um, being a survivor of abuse certainly affected my the people I married, my choices in the people I married, and um, mm-hmm. and they weren't good choices. I I thought it was okay for people to hurt me, to do things which mm-hmm. weren't okay, and I thought that was just how it was, you know. But I know now. It took me. It took me until I was how old was I? In my fifties, to finally divorce my second husband and say, you know what? I don't need to be poorly treated by someone who's in the same house with me. No, I don't need that. Good for you. I am going to be no. alone and treat myself well. Yeah. Well, isn't it amazing we can reach a point where we go? We have choices. <laughs> you know? I know exactly. Yeah, because having children especially, it just seemed like I didn't. Like I didn't have a choice to escape. No. Matter of fact, even, the, even you know, I've been, you know, out of abuse for years. But, you know, I still have to remind myself, hey, wait a minute. You've got choices here, you know. And, and it goes back to I'm in the realm of alcoholics and I'm going to go back to, you know, the Christianity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And it does. It takes yeah. courage to change um, these patterns um, that we learned growing up. You know, but, but you know, in, in the program, it says character defects is what I they call them. Well, I went through my whole big book is what they call it, which is the Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, kind of the instructions for the program. And I went through the whole thing. Anytime it's the character defects, I crossed it out and wrote coping skills or coping mechanisms, mm. you know, because, yeah, I, I lied, but I had a lie. I had to keep those secrets, you know. I couldn't could be going around telling the truth, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and and so, yeah. You know, I could look back, they won't, you know, I was a liar way back. But but I mm-hmm. like to survive. Or, or you know, um, yeah, just all these different things that I did, you know, to cope with what was going on and to cope with my memories afterwards. Like doing drugs and alcohol to try to forget what happened to me. And then, like you said, made very poor choices because I was using alcohol and drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm going to pick somebody that, you know. And I had, you know, been adopted by my grandparents. My uh, one brother was uh, said to live with my aunt, so we were told we were cousins. And my other brother lived with me. And then so he told the truth, and he got severely punished. And so my first husband um, had been raised by people that adopted him, and his brother was raised as his cousin as well. So, like, we had that in common, you know. We had child abuse in common. We had this in common. But none of them were positive things <laughs> that we had in common, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you understand me, you know. But neither one of us was getting any kind of help for it. Right. And, you know, we decided that when we got married, we weren't going to drink or use drugs anymore. Well, I followed through with it, and he didn't. And I guess one of the reasons I didn't um, use is because I wanted to get pregnant. And unfortunately, I want to get pregnant for the wrong reason. I want to get pregnant so I have somebody that would love me. But, you know, I learned very quickly that I, I had loved that child, you know, that I'm the one that had loved the child. It, it's not, the child just comes, you know, 
comes out and automatically loves you and, you know, can fill that need for you. But, you know, I always hated Valentine's Day because, like, as somebody wrote on there, um, you know, I see this on Facebook every year, something like Valentine's Day is um, uh, the day of the year um, that reminds me that um, I'm not in a committed relationship, you know. And so, um, I'm sorry, the stupid computer going off. But um, anyway, um, you know, um, but then I've, I've seen things that I really hold on to, which is I'd rather be alone in an abusive relationship, like you said, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, because at first it was like, oh, my God, you know, I don't want to raise these kids by myself and what a horrible person I am because they don't have a father, you know, instead of their father was abusive. It's a good thing got with him, you know. I'll do a better job without having them in the lives. Um, but, but yeah, we can, if we don't have the support um, and we don't get a chance to, like, work out a relationship or, you know, because no relationship, even if it's just a friendship, just automatically happens. You know, you've got to put time and energy into it. You, get, you know, call that person, hey, how you doing? You know, whatever, make some connections. Even a you know, a relationship. I don't know. Sometimes I don't talk to some of my other friends for you know a couple of years. But when I get on the phone with them, it's like I you know we never lost that connection. You know, because mm-hmm. we did take mm-hmm. to make that connection. Yep. What? Well, I'll repeat the phone number again. Please call. The phone number is six four six. Five nine five two one one eight, and tonight we're talking about relationships and how having survived child abuse can affect the relationships we're having today and how we can heal ourselves from it and have better relationships. It promises in this article I'm reading to tell me how I can heal. So hopefully we'll get to that part. Okay, this mm-hmm. article comes from a a website called Bridges to Recovery. It's a <clears throat> program that I, I don't know exactly. I think it's an addiction program, but I'm not sure. But it has good stuff. Uh, this article is really good. Okay. The trauma of childhood abuse can have long-term effects that continue to shape your sense of self and the world around you. Often one of the most tragic consequences of such trauma is its impact on your interpersonal relationships. By disrupting healthy development in your formative years, childhood abuse can deeply compromise your ability to form and maintain the healthy bonds that nurture us throughout our lives. For many survivors, understanding how the effects of trauma manifest in interpersonal relationships is an important step toward creating greater self-awareness and starting the healing journey. Human beings are innately social beings. From the time we are born, our identities and our ability to make sense of the world around us are continuously shaped by our social interactions. The most significant of these interactions typically occur in early childhood when attachment to others, particularly caregivers, first forms. 
Attachment is the emotional bond that is formed between objects in order to establish a sense of security and safety, explains psychologist Dr. Graham Barker. A secure attachment provides an internal feeling of security, even in the presence of distress. Confidence in your ability to engage with the world around you and a stable sense of identity and the ability to understand the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of both yourself and others. Secure attachment creates a solid foundation for understanding yourself and others, fosters healthy self-sufficiency and positive interactions, and strengthens your resilience, acts as a kind of psychological template that guides both current and future experiences, informing your emotions, beliefs, expectations, and ability to form subsequent healthy attachments. <clears throat> okay, I'll stop there and see if anybody, nope, nobody has called. I'll repeat the phone number, and then, Victoria, I'll ask you to comment. Okay, the phone number is 646-595-2118. And you're listening to Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Radio, brought to you by NASCA, the National Association for Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And Victoria, would you like to comment? Yeah, I think, you know, and that, that security and safety isn't there from the, the people that, we're supposed to be there for us, be it family members, um, caretakers, um, and, you know, um, um, I can't quote off the statistics right now, but, you know, the, the most unsafest place to be is your home for a child um, as far as abuse is concerned because um, I think I say 85% of child abuse is um, done in the home, you know. So, so really, you know, there's there's a lot, um, like you said, if that, that security and safety is not there, and uh, I look at kids, and you can kind of, like say if you you know go out shopping or you go to the park or whatever, you can kind of see the kids that that feel safe, you know, that that uh, mm-hmm. the parents are very watchful and concerned, and then you see other ones that you're like, you don't even know where their parents are, you know, it's kind of. Yeah. Wandering around, nobody's looking at them, nobody's interacting with them, you know. And so, so sometimes you can just kind of, kind of notice that, you know. And then, uh, um, you know, for me, um, not knowing that at that time when I was very, very young, that my mother had um, just on a train to send us to Minnesota, because I asked her later on as an adult, you know, why did you? us on a train and sent us to Minnesota on my first birthday and she says because I had a feeling you were in danger you know and, and she had a feeling but her feeling was right on because from what living here I had been sexually abused before I was a year old so her they might call motherly instinct she might just call it gut feeling you know that she went with that and I tell you in my eyes that's, that's what a good mother does you know, because she could not trust my biological father with our kids, and she knew it. 
So she sent us, as she said, safety, which she thought was safety, you know, mm-hmm. to her dad, mm-hmm. my step grandmother. But, um, you That's know, courageous of her. Um, it was, it was. And, you know, my, my dad, it was so bad. But, um, like, when she was pregnant with my oldest brother, um, he beat her so hard she, um, you know, had a, had a miscarriage. Oh. And my brother beat her in the stomach so bad. Yeah, she beat, he beat her all the time, unconscious. She never went to the hospital because, of course, he wouldn't let her. He beat her all the time, you know. And yet she couldn't and, leave him. Yeah, and people wouldn't understand, too, that, you know, there were no better women's shelters back in the 60, early 60s, you know. There there was no place to really go. And, uh, no. you know, he had her out, out as a stripper, and he was watching us kids, you know, or not watching us kids that way, you know. So as far as, mm-hmm. you know, the definition for... Um, through the prostitution, you know, and, and a pimp, a pimp is somebody that makes uh, um, um, profits from somebody being either used as um, prostitute and pornography or stripping. So he's living off her profits, you know, and uh, he wouldn't work. He, you know, that was a big thing. She said he wouldn't work, but put her out there, you know. And and even yeah. though she says she chose, I chose it, she follows up with, your dad didn't work, and I had to feed three kids. So, you know, I look at that and go, what kind of choice is that? You know? Yeah. But, I, but I'm not going to argue with her. You know what I mean? Because everybody's got their own reality, and they're just things that she just couldn't come to terms with. You know, to look at, like, the reality, it wouldn't even do much for her to have a whole lot of discussion about The only time that she ever did go to the hospital was when he beat her so bad that I was coming out of her socket. So she, he finally oh let her win. But then, you know, he was right there with her. And when they said, you know, what happened, she said she fell and hit, uh, you know, corner of the counter. And, uh, you know, there were there was nothing back there to even do with, you know, even if the doctors knew that wasn't the case, they didn't interfere with, you know, a domestic violence situation. And so she had, her eye was half closed all the time, and she just called it a lazy eye. I really didn't mm-hmm. know until you later. You know, I just noticed her eye was kind of creepy, you know. And then I noticed she was telling everybody she had a lazy eye. And then one day, when I was living with her, as an adult, I asked her, you know, what, what did happen to your eye, you know. And then she told me, mm-hmm. she told me the story. You know, doing and tell everybody on the street, yeah, you know, my husband beat the crap out of me all the time, you know. So was he living when she told that? Huh? Was he still living when she told that? Oh, God. Yeah, she, he was living, but, but she got away from him right after, um, right after she sent us kids off. Okay. She sent us Good. kids to safety. And then, and then she escaped from him. But she got back together when I was 17, and my brothers were out, and he got house out in the middle of the woods, rented it, and she convinced me to come out there so our family be together again. And then, then I got raped by him again. So, mm-hmm. and then I, 
I took off my told my grandfather to come get me, and he came and got me. Of course, I didn't tell nobody. And uh, um, but anyway, um, um, so anyway, the only way she got away from him that time was um, she she found some bikers to go beat the shit out of them, and then she was part of mm. the bikers. You know what I mean? She was their property, mm-hmm. which basically meant she got passed around, and she knew that's what was going to happen if she had those bikers. But she said it was better being passed around by those bikers than it was being with him. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot right there. That's saying a lot. Yeah. And it shows you yeah. how how much people are, are able and willing to accept abuse because of mm-hmm. their past. Yeah, yeah. You, you wouldn't and then think she got to she she said, with this. Right, and then she got to a point where she said, I will never be abused by a man again, and that's when I was love with her. So what did she do? She abused men and took advantage of them. You know what I mean? So um, to me, there were four relationships, victim or abuser. And and I didn't mm-hmm. want to be an abuser, you know? So I didn't see any healthy relation. I had no role model for healthy relationships in my life, you know, at all. So I didn't even know what hell yeah. looked like, you know, or healthy parenting, you know. I didn't know what hell that looked like. So I went to parenting classes and support groups and, you know, survivor um, of incest support groups and mental hospitals and psychiatrists and stuff. You know, that that's where mm-hmm. I learned relationship, you know, building relationships and, you know, parenting and, and uh, you know, um, realize there was another way to be. That's all a process, yeah. you know, and so people never are able to get to that process. They end up, you know, at the very end of their life, they're still in a, the abusive situation. Yeah. Being, you know, that they died at the hands of their abusers or they just died still being with the abuser. My parents stayed together their whole lives, and my, my mom kept uh-huh. abusing my dad verbally up till the day he died. Yep. Yep. And then she said, after he died, when she was no longer a screaming, yelling maniac, somebody asked her why she had stopped screaming. She said, well, I don't have anyone to scream at now. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Apparently she thought that was her job, was to scream at him. Yeah. I always thought it was because he abused us and and, that he deserved it, you know. But that was a bad thing to learn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could yeah, pick up either direction, you know, when we grew up with abuse. You know, I know a lot of survivors that are more angry at, you know, the parent that didn't do anything than the actual one that did the abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mad at my, my mother because she, she knew about the abuse and she didn't stop it. Right, right. Yeah, that's... That's that's hard to take. But then, you know, um, the way I look at my mom's situation is that, you know, he had power over my mom, too. You know? Right. You know, you got to wonder what that whole dynamic is where, you know, and the other thing is, is that a lot of parents um, weren't protected as children themselves, so they don't know how to protect their own kids. Right. It's true. You know, 
minimize their abuse, so a lot of them minimize their own children's abuse. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of them, because they were abused themselves, they just think, okay, well, uh-huh. it's my kid's turn to get abused. Um, well, they I think, think it's their children's they really just don't. They just don't understand the concept of protecting your children, like you said, you know, that safety and the security and the protection that a parent should be doing isn't happening. It probably didn't happen for them either, you know, and that's why they they don't know how to do that because it wasn't done for them. Right. That's like I told people that my sponsor loved me before I could love myself, and really she was the first one that really loved me for unconditional love. You know, exactly where I was at. Oh. You know, I didn't have to be sober to for her to, you know, care about me. And that just kind of blew me away. <laughs> you know? Wow. That's you great. know, and I thought it was a really bad person. It didn't matter what I shared with her, you know. She didn't go, you know, oh, my God, that's horrible, you know. She just was, like, totally supportive and there for me. And how I understand what, you know, because I met her through a bad relationship her. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let me go back to our, should I go back to our articles? Sure, that'd be great. It's going to tell us us some things that we do, like, ooh, that's interesting, disorganized attachment. That just sounds like me. Okay, but we're not there yet. Okay, inability to trust. The ability to trust others is a critical part of forming and maintaining healthy relationships. When someone has experienced childhood abuse, however, that ability is often diminished or even removed altogether. As a result, you may be reluctant to engage in honest and open relationships for fear that you will be betrayed or harmed. By staying closed off, guarded, hypervigilant, it can be difficult for others to feel close to you. And you deny yourself the opportunity to form healthy and meaningful bonds. The lack of trust also affects all insecure attachment styles. And I want to respond to this because um, I'm always hypervigilant, (laughs) but I'm better about it now. But I want to say as far as trust, Rather than being unable to trust, I had this opposite problem where I would open my wallet and my heart and my soul to everyone and trust implicitly with never a question. And it was like because I deserved to be hurt, so I'm just going to let anybody do it. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I did the same thing too a lot because, um, you know, and then then when I started getting psychiatric help, you know, and they said, um, oh, you need to set boundaries with, you know, these people in your life. And I said, oh, I do. And I started, you know, saying the way I set boundaries because I thought it was doing much better. And and the therapist said, you're describing walls. (laughs) You know, but, but to me, I was protecting myself from like you said, you know, being vulnerable. And in a relationship, you know, um, I learned um, there is, you know, vulnerability. And also, hey, the therapist told me, you know, just one person can't meet all your needs. And that blew me away because I guess I expected my husband, who I was married to, um, 
to me on my knees, and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And and it really was like, you know, I just really loved him, and he loved me. But, you know, I just could not understand, you know. And also finding out he wasn't a mind reader that I actually can't tell him, you know. Like, you mm-hmm. know, that really hurt my feelings when he said that. or You know, but, but I could never say that before in a relationship, you know, because mm-hmm. I'd be afraid of getting hurt. Emotionally, physically, whatever. So, yeah, it, you know, you have to, and, and then I didn't have anybody in my life for a long time, and it was by choice because I couldn't develop a healthy relationship. So I just, you know, I would rather, I would say, I'd rather be alone than in a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. And it really had to focus on me, you know. Like I told the kids, I turned 60 years old. I said, now it's my time to live. Been in relationships all my right. life, raising my kids, whatever, you know, or just trying to survive. And this is the first time where I've ever felt like, okay, it's my time. <laughs> it's my time now, mm-hmm. you know. It is your is time. Feeling. Yeah. But but the thing is, it was my time my whole life. It should have been my time my whole life. It should have been, you know, That's right. what, That's what right. my desires were, what my happiness was. It wasn't. And it took a long time yeah. to learn that that was okay, that I had those needs. Because there was a time where I didn't feel like I deserved to breathe the air, eat food, um, anything, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I was very yeah. suicidal and uh, um, was cutting myself and all kinds of self-harm, you know, and yeah. starvation, starving myself, just different things like that. Because I really did not, I believed all those ways that I, you know, wasn't worth anything. And and now I look back and think, no, if my life had been different, somebody would have intervened when the seven-year-old neighbor was abusing all the kids in the neighborhood, and somebody would come in, all these kids need to get some kind of therapy, you know. But, but back then, again, in the 60s, no, nobody thought they just, you know, let them talk about it, the kid will forget. And, and you don't right. forget. And and it does have an impact on on your relationships in the future, and the the trust is really really a big thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was so desperate to be cared about that that's why I think I just trusted everybody like you were talking about because it was so needy. Yeah, that Hoping makes that sense. Made you me. want so much to have people in your life that you. Know, Trust them that they're not going to hurt you, even though there's yep. evidence that they probably will. Well, I had a girlfriend that would come over to my house, and, you know, she, they had a beautiful house, and she had a huge swimming pool and just all this money and everything. And we were, like, middle class, which was way lower than this, you know, like Donaldson's and Dayton's and Humphrey's, who I went to school with, you know, that type of richness. And middle class was just, you know... Pretty much, we didn't weren't even part of their world because they all belong in country clubs and you know all these social things. But um, anyway, this girlfriend I had, and she would come over to my house, and and we'd be you know in my room playing and whatever, and she'd go, "Oh, I really like that necklace," and I'd say, "Oh, you do here," and I'd go get it as quick as I couldn't give it to her, you know, because I wanted her to be a friend. 
And I think that's I one reason why under- I... I just saw on the screen that a caller dropped, and I didn't see a caller come on. Did yeah, you? Yeah, she came on for just a short minute. We went over to talk to her, and she, she was a part of NASCA, but she, she had to go. She said, oh. yeah, I'm sorry, but I have to go. So I don't know. Okay. I don't know who it was, but she, I, she, I don't know if she was going to call back or if she just, something happened, she had to leave. Yeah, there was another caller. Okay. It was not, I don't think it was anything we said. It was something that had come up at our end, you know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let me go on with the next paragraph. It's about yep. avoidant attachment. Some people who do not experience the benefit of secure attachment in childhood decide consciously or unconsciously to avoid attachment to others altogether. While this is often driven partially by an inability to trust others, it also arises due to the extreme self-reliance. Hey, that's me. Many survivors of abuse have to develop at critical developmental stages. If you've learned from an early age that you cannot rely on others, to meet your attachment needs, you may decide to ignore these needs or attempt to meet them yourself. In adulthood, this typically translates to social avoidance, yes, or the formation of emotionally distant relationships in which you remain unresponsive to the needs of others. Yeah, no, not that's not me. But yeah, about social avoidance. Yeah, I don't want to get into a relationship where I'm going to be compromising myself and, you know, mm-hmm. putting putting what I want in the back burner to somebody else's needs and doing all the things I did all my life. I don't want to do that anymore. So I am avoidant. Yeah. I am avoiding a relationship. Don't want mm-hmm. it. Do you think it's just like intimate relationships? Do you think it might be um, kind of flowing over into friendship relationships as well? I'm just curious. I'm sorry, would you repeat that? Yeah, well, like with me, um, it wasn't only um, intimate relationships like, you know, a boyfriend or whatever, but, but it was friendships too. It was like I couldn't develop friendships that was for the same reason. So I was just wondering. Absolutely. Yes, I could not. I never had friends my whole life except this one person who was about 30 years older than me that just kind of latched onto me, and he stayed with me until his death a few years back. But he was my only friend. And the only reason he was my friend was because he would come over all the time and call me. You know, I never did anything to be his friend. (laughs) <laughs> but he persevered. Yeah. Yeah. That was my only yeah, that's, friend. But that's now, a really good friend. once I started hanging out with other survivors of childhood abuse, mm-hmm. people who understand me, you know, I yeah. I have friends now. I have friends now who are not survivors as well. But in the beginning, yeah. when I first started to have friends, they were all survivors, so they all understood why I froze up and stopped talking, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. They understand. They know because they've yeah. been there. Yeah. 
Well, I think, I think that's the thing, like I was saying, you know, um, we have to learn these behaviors, and a lot of times the people that we're meeting in these groups, smart groups, they're learning the behaviors too, so we can talk it more out with them, you know, and, mm-hmm. and say, you know, yeah, yeah, this, you know, this anxiety came up, I was doing this. Where another person, like, you know, like I went to the dentist, I had severe anxiety. Yeah, I don't like going to the dentist either, somebody that might not be a child abuse survivor, but they don't understand. And then I would get into being orally raped and say, that right. is why I have trouble at the dentist. And, and a survivor will go, oh, that makes sense. But some also go, yeah. what? You know? And, and they don't want to hear about it. They can't even figure out what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And why that would affect you. Why are you bringing that up, you know, in their conversation? You know, it's like, you know, you just can't have, like, you know, chit-chat over dinner. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because they're not talking about what I'm talking about. I, I stayed at this place, and it was for people that were uh, homeless. And it was, like, kind of a... I don't know if it was a foster care situation or what, but it was a crisis, um, two, three weeks kind of thing, you know. And so I went into these mm-hmm. houses and they had somebody over. And, and here I am, you know, like struggling for food, shelter, clothing. And they're talking about, you know, um, putting in a skylight in their, you know, living room. And, and they're having this conversation. Yeah. It's like, what do you even say about that? You know, like... God, right, I had the food, you know, I wish I had the money for the food that you're paying to put the skylight in. <laughs> Can you drop one, you know, yeah. 2% of that yeah. over this way, you know, but, you know, and they're like, you know, talking about these big numbers that I can't even conceive because yeah. I'm like no money, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's, it's hard to comprehend that, um, you know, and people go, well, why did your dad do that to you? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know. Oh, I don't understand. Right. I said, well, I don't understand either. I said, but I'm glad that you don't understand. I'm glad that I don't understand because that means we're not like him. Because if we understood, we yeah. probably, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But other times I've been in relationships, you know. Um, one time I was on the internet and this guy was like chatting me up and this and that and. You know, he, I don't know, asked about my first sexual experience, and I had never really talked to anybody on the Internet before, you know, and I just wrote down, you know, my um, biological father wrote me. So he writes back and says, oh, so your first sexual experience was with your father. And I go back, no, he wrote me. I know, yeah. You know, and it was like, uh, it wasn't a sexual experience, you know. Uh, so it was like, you know, I just, decided that because either guys would be just like totally disgusted and want to go kill him or they would be really intrigued and want to know every detail about how he abused me you know and then they use that yeah. to abuse me yeah you know like my son's father found out that i was using prostitution so um after i told him that um we i thought made love but we had sex that night and i woke up the next morning and he had left money on the bed Oh my! And here I was sharing this, you know, really, really hard thing to share that was really painful. Thinking that, you know, he might understand and be supportive, and and that's what happened. He left money on the bed the next morning. So, you know, that was that was my relationship with my son's father. He used everything that I said to, you know, 
turn around against me and make me feel worse about myself. Yeah. I'm so sorry that was that why I, Yeah, so that's why, you know, I had a real hard time sharing um, with anybody who was in a, any kind of relationship. Because, you know, like mm-hmm. I said, I thought it was setting boundaries, but really I was putting up walls. And I put up so many mm-hmm. walls, I was trapped inside of it, you know, and I couldn't breathe, literally, you know. I felt like I was always gasping for breath. Um, I don't even know how to explain that except for that is the kind of image that I see. Just these walls mm-hmm. all the way around me and just to protect myself. And then I realized I could go out and live in the world and, and, you know, set boundaries. And and no, you can't treat me like that, you know. I deserve Mm -hmm. to be treated Mm -hmm. better because I never believed I did. Once I figured out I did deserve to be treated better and that I did have choices of who I was going to be in a relationship with. That's when it became. And we powerful. don't have to hang out with people who don't know how to treat us. That's right. We don't have That's to hang right. out with them. We don't have to be their friends. We can walk away yep. and be friends with somebody else instead. Yep. Well, even our family, I, I felt that. so, I felt so afraid of betraying my family, especially my grandparents, because they weren't like outrightly abusive. They were very controlling and, and a bunch of other stuff that I didn't really identify with right away. But but when I started going to therapy, it was like I would not say anything bad about them because I, mm-hmm. I just, you know, weren't not to say nothing bad. <laughs> and and I felt those betraying right. them. Right. You know, like I'm saying love is thicker than water or whatever that is. You know, blood is thicker than water and all these weird sorts of things, you know, that family comes first. Well, family really didn't come no, first doesn't. when they didn't protect their children. Yeah, children come first. Yeah. Yep. Matter of fact, um, I just in, got a in message. In I just got a message from Felicia. She's saying oh, okay. she's not able to be on tonight. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, let her know we appreciate her um, letting us know, and that you know, let's make sure she can get on another night. The things happen, you know. Yeah. Okay, I responded. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Let's see. Uh-oh. Lost my page. Here it is. <laughs> um, I was going to move on to this part here. The diminished yeah. ability to participate in stable, mutually satisfying relationships can have significant consequences for abuse survivors. Not only do attachment needs continue to go unmet, you're also vulnerable to engaging in destructive behaviors and relationship dynamics that cause additional damage to your psychological health and further disrupt the potential for healthy attachment formation. This is particularly true if you are drawn to individuals who, as Dr. Brenner describes it, fit your traumatic identity. As a result, you may surround yourself with emotionally unavailable or even abusive people, yes, or find yourself engaging in codependent relationships. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. This may not only lock one into your old identity while preventing new identities from taking root, it can also lead to traumatic bonding and re-traumatization that create future further emotional damage. And then they have some advice for us. I'm glad there's a little bit of help here. Let's I see. love it. Yeah, there's got to be hope or it ain't worth it, right? <laughs> there's got to be hope. Yeah, there's got to be hope. There's hope. There is hope. Let me tell everyone listening, there is hope. Because I used to be a person curled up in the fetal position in the corner of my closet. And I couldn't leave the house for a couple of years. I was a very sick person for many years. And look at me now. I can talk to people who I don't even know. I've grown yeah. so much. It, there is hope. There really is hope. You can you can come out of the dark place. You can move right. on from people who are hurting you. But you, you also have to believe there's hope. You know, if, if you keep telling myself things will never change, things will never change, they won't. You have to be able to tell yourself things will change. And this is yeah. how I'm going to take steps to make things change because we do have to take control because now we do have choices. That's what I meant, you know, about saying. I have to remind myself I have choices, but I do and it's a hard, it's a hard thing, you know. Um, I know that some things for me, just taking a risk to go outside, you know, to just just go mm-hmm. a half a block and come back in the house, was like devastating. But I knew that that's what I needed to do, and I had the hope that one day I could go out and have coffee by myself, you know. And guess what? One day I went out and had coffee by myself, and I couldn't believe it that I went from only going a half a block and coming inside and, and, you know, trying to recuperate from that trauma is what it felt like a trauma, you know? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Let's see. There's a broad variety, here's the good stuff, of therapeutic modality proven to help abuse survivors regain psychological health. While the specifics of these modalities may differ, at their core is the presence of a healthy therapeutic alliance or trusting bond between therapist and client. This bond can act as a key component of healing from attachment disruptions by allowing you to move toward a healthier attachment style. By creating a safe, supportive relationship in which your thoughts and feelings are validated and understood, your therapist can help you heal from attachment injuries while modeling what secure attachment looks like. At the same time, you are able to process and resolve your traumatic memories while addressing traumatic effects such as emotional dysregulation, unstable identity, and unhealthy patterns of thought and behavior. As such, you can move forward toward improved psychological harmony, resilience, and a newfound understanding of how to form and maintain healthy, meaningful, and fulfilling personal relationships. Okay, well, so far all I learned was I have to go to a therapist again. <laughs> Any help? Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't go to a therapist, even though I have a really good cognitive behavioral therapist that I really like. I just, 
I don't feel like I need to talk anymore. Yeah. I mean, because I talk all the time. I talk to people openly about things. I talk about my yeah. feelings. So I don't feel like I need that bond with, you know, a professional yeah. to listen to me anymore. But right. um, it sure has What about helpful. the beginning, though? It sure has. Was it helpful in the beginning? Very much. Very much. He He would point out things that would never even occur to me. One time I was almost going to do something really stupid, and I told him about mm-hmm. it, and he said, no, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you mean I don't have to do that? I thought I had to, you know, but no, yeah. I didn't have yeah. to. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can remember yeah, my first psychologist after I got diagnosed with MPD, you know, and I'd been seeing her for a while, and then she told me she'd be on two-week vacation. And in the back of my head I could hear this voice say, how dare you leave me and go on vacation? What he talked about, you know? Uh-huh. And, and I really had to work through that, you know? Like, she deserves vacation. She's been dedicated to me for all this time. And, and you know, people go on vacation. Yeah. That doesn't mean that she's abandoning me, but all those old abandonment feelings came back, you know? Mm-hmm. So we worked through them, you know? And, and I just want to let people know. That, yeah, there are people that come to a point where they say, I don't need therapy anymore, but I really suggest something that's just beginning to start remembering or to start dealing with these things to get a professional. Because yeah. if you do share, you know, like in a peer support, that's fantastic, like, you know, like NASCA and things. But I also believe that you need, you know, some more kind of support because, um these are trained professionals that, you know, just like the information you read, you know, they know this type of information and, and they've been trained to help people with it. And so mm-hmm. I suggest, you know, I do suggest people to go to therapy. And, and although there's no one way to go, um, I think therapy has been a very good tool for a lot of survivors that I know. Even if they don't even go that long, just get like, you know, like some of it it talks about just that, that groundwork of, mm-hmm. you know, developing, having somebody there for you. You know, I know that when I go to therapy, my therapist is going to show up. And if she's not going to show up, you know, they, they'll call me and say she's sick today or, you know, whatever. Um, that I get my time, the time I deserve, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you know, that just, that really blew me away that I was seeing this therapist, very intense therapy, um, twice a week. Plus, I was in another psych ward. And when I got out of the psych ward, guess what? I got my appointments back, just like that, you know. And she worked with mm-hmm. me until I had 31 personalities. She worked with me until I had no more splits that were happening. And then she retired. Wow. And I tell you what, I really feel in the back of my mind looking back at that, that she hung in there before she retired until that happened. Because I think she was past retirement age. And she told me her dream was to travel the world. Yep. She told me her dream was to travel the world and she was going to retire. And and it just made me really happy that she was going to, because she helped me out so much, you know. Yeah, yeah. She's unbelievable. No, I, didn't, I didn't mean to, to demean um, therapy at all just because I don't go anymore. I totally believe in it. I totally believe in it. 
Yeah, I, I no, I was just I was trying to bring out the fact that that some of us do get to a point where you know because I've gotten to several points several times where I just said, you know, I need to take a break or I don't need it right now, and then I've gone back. Or some people just say, you know, hey, I got naps now, and I got you know friends or. Or, you know, I go to AA and I got friends there and I'm developing a healthy relationship. Whatever you do, you know, whatever kind of a, you know, if it was working for you, great. You know, because everybody's got their own path. So whatever's working mm-hmm. for you and it feels good and it feels right, please do it. Not, it's not for everybody. But, you know, I would tell people, try things, you know, try some new ways mm-hmm. to heal. You know, like, you know, at first I was going to try this, like, meditation stuff, you know, and positive affirmations and all that, you know. And at first it was like, mm-hmm. stay working, you know. But I had to give it a little bit of time and, and figure out, you know, is this really something I want to do? And it did work for me. And some people it didn't work for, you know. And, and they just moved on right. something that did. And that's the whole thing is that we all have our own, you know, journey, but hopefully – you know, like when we pass the NAS, pass on the NASCA trail is what I call it. You know, we get to meet other adult survivors of child abuse. But there's all kinds of things. Some people, you know, get involved in, uh, really involved in parenting or community, you know, organizing or, you know, um, in their job or whatever. And they learn these skills and you don't have to just do one way as long as you're feeling better. That's the whole point. Yeah, as long as it makes you feel better, and you know that it makes you feel better, you know, and, and we're all put on this earth to have joy and happiness. And if you don't have joy and happiness, then then figure out a way that that you can help yourself because nobody's going to rescue you. I'm sorry to tell people, but nobody's going to rescue you by yourself because you're the only one that knows what you really mean, right? Yeah. I mean, I can go to yeah. a doctor and he could say, you know, I'm going to do surgery and this or that. But if I don't want surgery, it doesn't matter what he says, you know. Right. He gives me the choice. You know, he gives me the choice and I weigh the decision. You know, I can either be in pain or have surgery. And if I decide, you know, one way or the other, because maybe the surgery is too risky. I have choices today. Mm-hmm. You know, you know I turned down surgery. I'll, I'll have you know, yeah. I, I'm scared of authority, you know, in a way. I, I'm not so much anymore like I was. But I used to yeah. be scared of the doctors. And the doctors told me they needed to do surgery. And I said, no, you don't, and you're not going to. Yeah. And I, I turned yeah. down the the medical yeah. treatment. They were wrong. I knew they were wrong because it's my body. Yeah. So And I'm fine. Yeah. That's what I said. You know, we, yeah. need, we need to be in touch with our body, our mind, and our spirit because we know our body better than a doctor does. If we go in there and they say, ah, nothing's wrong with you, and we know there's, you know, like me, I went for 300 yeah. pounds down to 150. I knew something was wrong, and I want to get a mammogram, yeah. and she says, no, you don't, you know, qualify for a mammogram because you're not 40 yet. You're like 38. Well, fortunately, hmm. which you was fortunate, I got mastitis and married breast. Then they were able to give me antibiotics and a mammogram, and that's where they found breast cancer. Oh. So, I mean, some, of, some people have to go years before they get the correct diagnosis. They know something's literally wrong, but, 
You know, I hate when doctors will say it's all in your head. Well, that is in my head. <laughs> I'm smart enough to know something's wrong with me. <laughs> Get that in your head, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is in my head. You're right. <laughs> but, yeah, um, just like I said, hope is so important because, um, you know, I was so hopeless, hopeless for so many years that nothing would change, you know. And nothing changes if nothing changes, they say. And so if we want things to change, we have to make steps in a direction where they're going to change. And it might take a while to figure out what the steps are, what direction you actually want to go. But but give yourself time to just sit with yourself and figure out what you want to do with your life. You know? There's a lot of people that have regrets. I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. Like, I want to go to Graceland, you know? So I'm starting to save to go. Mm-hmm. I did a vision board, with, you know, I'm starting to put Elvis up there, you know, and, and oh. pictures of Elvis. I, you know, so I'm making a vision board because that's, that's my dream to do. I've been wanting to do that for years. But, you know, unless I plan and I'm putting this month, much money away every month, and, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take me, but, but I'm going to go, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, I might not make it, but at least, you know, I'm going the right direction. That you know, that's just one example. There's other examples. Like you know, I I used to tell people I can't cook. I can't cook. People either say, "Oh, I'm a great cook, and I make this and that and everything else," or somebody else would say, "Well, that's okay. You don't have to cook." But one time I told a worker, I says, "You know, I don't know how to cook," and and she says to me, "Well, you know, when you were younger, did you were you interested in cooking?" I says, "Yeah, I tried to get, you know, and my grandma teach me how to cook because she's a fantastic cook." But you know what they get out of the kitchen, you're in my way. You know, I just want to watch you get out of my way. I can't have you in the kitchen when I'm trying to go. You know? And, and she says, well, how do you expect yourself to know how to cook if nobody ever taught you? And and that's the way I look at things. How do I expect myself to know how to do something if nobody taught me? Nobody took the time to teach me. Or I didn't read a book or I didn't, you know, now you can go on the Internet pretty much and, you know, like, ask my kids something, and they're like, oh, God, I'm going to Google it, or it's on YouTube, or something. You know? <laughs> it's like, never used to be able to say that. When my kids were little and they asked questions, I said, let's go to the library. <laughs> you yeah. know, instead of making that crap like my grandfather did. You know? I'd say, how do the streetlights work? Well, there's these little guys inside of there that, you know, get <laughs> red and yellow and green, you know. Well, I knew that wasn't true. He wasn't going to say go to the library and find out, you know, and, and not admit that they were wrong whatsoever, ever, you know, even if you proved them that, you know, that's not true. Here's, a, you know, a book I found on how street lights work. No, they're wrong. <laughs> it's the little men in the light. <laughs> so it's like you're a story no matter what. <laughs> no. You could never say you were wrong to your kids. You know, in their minds. And that was one thing I always, right. you know, if I got mad at my kids and, and you know, and, and I yelled at them or whatever, I would go back and say that I was sorry. I should have yelled at you, you know, let's sit down and talk this out. You know, let me listen mm-hmm. to you this time. Or something, you know. Because I wasn't, you know, nobody's a parent. And, you know, we went to, we were going to parenting classes and this um, this uh, therapist that was there told us, you know, because cause kids were not listening to us, you know, so I was like yelling 
And and she says, if you really want your kids to listen, they went parent deaf, isn't what she called it. <laughs> they went parent deaf. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so she said, if you really want your kids to listen, whisper. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I did, and they come over. What? <laughs> Good plan. She had a little voice. Yeah, she had a real little voice so that they could barely hear it. You know, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you saying, Mama? You know. <laughs> And they listen. So, you know, there's different different tactics. You know, I said, my kids keep pushing my buttons. And she said, well, get button protectors. <laughs> button protector. <laughs> well, you know, they're going to push, right? Because I will push the same buttons, you know. Well, yeah. Well, just expect that's what they're going to respond to when you say that to them, you know. Just, just be prepared. And put a button mm-hmm. protector on. <laughs> So I tell parents, well, just get some button protectors. Well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you tell your kid go clean your room, they're going to, you know, not do it. So just ignore what they're going to react and, and, you know, give them a consequence, you know. Well, if you don't clean mm-hmm. your room, you can't watch TV then if they watch a certain show yeah. or you know, time on the computer or whatever, you know, instead of screaming at them to clean your room. Because you're getting upset. And then you're upset all night, you know, saying, mm-hmm. good for either one of you. And the room ain't clean either. <laughs> you're miserable. Wake up the next morning, the room's still up. You know, and I just got yeah. tired of, you know, I told the therapist, I'm sick of looking at the room. She goes, well, if you want to look at the rooms, and shut the door. I says, yeah, but what if somebody comes over, you know, and they see my rooms like that? She goes, well, if you got me coming over, just go shut the kids' room and say, you don't open that door. <laughs> as long as there's no smell coming out of it or nothing crawling under the door, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so I stop worrying about the rooms, you know. That's how you want to live. Yeah. Mom, I don't have my clothes, you know, because they're all over the floor. Well, then I guess I'm going to pick out the one that's at least wrinkled and dirty. I don't know. You you needed to get it in the laundry. I was doing laundry. I told you, pick up anything you want washed. And you went off and done something else. You know, well, pretty soon they learned what to clothes in the laundry. That's nice of you to wash them for them. Well, yeah, and I told they them that. I said, sell. all I want you is food, shelter, and clothing and love, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We felt your clothing in love. I said, beyond that, everything else is gravy. Or, you know, frosting on the cake or whatever you want to call it. All the other mm-hmm. things I do, you know. But but really just, you know, being a good parent is, you know, um, wanting to make, wanting to see your kids happy. Wanting to see them, telling them they're important. Telling them they deserve a good life and they deserve to be happy and they deserve to follow their dreams, you know, and encourage them. And I see my daughter doing that sometimes. I'm in the house of my, my daughter and my granddaughter, and it's like my daughter is, you know, so encouraging and supportive and, you know, look, has a problem, and my daughter is, you know, just right there talking mm-hmm. to her and everything. And, you know, I sometimes, I got tears in my eyes because of what Aww. a good mom she is. You know, yeah, I'm proud of her because you know I couldn't be there for my kids. I had to put them in permanent foster care, and they both learned a lot by having somebody there for. Because I was so unstable, because I was in and out of the psych ward, it wasn't fair to them, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Right. But they learned a lot that of that. That was right of you to get you help. That was. Oh, like, it was the hardest thing in the world, but I was literally told that you've got to get help yourself before you, you know, you've got to learn, you know, take care of yourself before you can take care of your children. You deserve it. Yeah. You know? And and it was the hardest decision I ever made, but the best decision I ever made. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, know, I, I know that I had effects on my kids that I wish that mm-hmm. I hadn't had because yeah. of, mm-hmm. of, you know, my abuse yeah. and who I was. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I have a lot of parents, talk to a lot of parents that say that, and I say, you know, those are regrets. And here's the thing about regrets. We only did what we did with the information we had at the time. I said the information I yep. had at the time that was given to me was wrong, and I was outright lied to, you know? So when you're functioning, yeah. it's like functioning with bad information, of course you're not going to, you know, none of us are going to be perfect anyway. I mean, that is like, you know, that's not even going to happen, and parents aren't perfect. But the important thing is, is that, we learn, and and we become better, better people, you know. And yeah. like NASA, mm-hmm. you know, and I always try my best. And that's really all we can do is our best. Nobody can expect anything right. more out of anybody on this earth than their best. And your best might be different than my best. My best might be, you know, for a long time, my best was just getting up out of bed in the morning because I was staying in bed two, yeah. three weeks at a time. And so just getting yeah, up was my best compared to somebody else's best who was running around with a full-time job and three kids, you know, that was their best. And and so you yeah. just can't compare. And, and when you have an illness, you know, it affects you. Right, right, right. You know, and, and one thing my sponsor said is don't compare your insides to everybody else's outside because you do not know True. what people are going through. Mm-hmm. And they might just put on this mask and their makeup and they do their hair and nice clothes and everything else and go out into the world. You don't know what they're struggling with. And seeing how one out of three women is sexually abused, you can guess that that's probably yeah. one of the things they're struggling with. Yep. You know? That's right. And I think more boys are abused than what the statistics are, too. Um, because that's right. Because boys and men are talking about it, you know, like women are, because even with the battered women's movement, I mean, I had guys that came to me that said, you know, I'm really, really proud of you women to be able to speak out, but I wish the men could get that sort of a uh, alliance because there are no services for men who are being abused. And people see, you know, a man being abused and, and don't comprehend it whatsoever if he's being abused My by brother. his boyfriend, you know. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I I dropped my phone. I apologize for that noise. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> but men oh, get abused, and another... you know we got better women shelters out here. But what do you do when you have a man that comes in and says his his wife, girlfriend, you know, boyfriend, husband, whatever is abusing them? What what do they have? Nothing, you know. So what we are doing out here in Minnesota is putting them up in shelters. And then if they have kids, um, they're more likely to get their kids taken away if they're homeless than, than a woman is. Because there's resources yeah. for women. 
that aren't for men. So a lot of men just won't tell anybody their own lives. And they try to make, you know, make it go if they escaped abuse. So we, we got to be just become more aware, and that's what NASCA is doing is is bringing about more awareness uh, about child abuse and neglect, and you know, educating people on what what the truth yeah. is. And, and that's you know what we need more of. I wish we had commercials on TV that taught you parenting tips. They should yeah. all be on every 20 minutes, you know, on every channel. Yeah. And then I, I, I know TV is not the latest technology. It should be on Google and all those other things, too, where yeah. people just see yeah. it all the time. And so when they come into the situation, they'll they'll know, oh, this is what I should do yeah. in this situation. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's my dream. How do we yeah. make it happen? Well, you know, I looked up um, uh, child abuse um, um, podcasts, you know, and they had mm-hmm. the top 30. They had the top 30, and NASCA was number one. Yay. And that just made me feel so good <laughs> that I'm a part of NASCA. Yeah. It came up number one. And I know we have, um, I meant, want to mention, too, WIF's peer support group, um, and that meets on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. I'm the facilitator on on Tuesdays, so I just I did a group oh. today on Tuesday, and people can come on and they don't have to show their face if they don't want to. They don't even have to put their name in there. Some people come up with just the name of their phone, <laughs> you know, and you don't have to talk if you don't want to. You can just listen. Um, you can share how you came or how you, you know, some people are like, oh, yeah, I just Googled, you know, child abuse support group and NASCA came up. And so here I am. And if people go mm-hmm. to the front page, org, which is N-A-A-S-C-A, and it comes sometimes pins up NASCAR, so you got to correct it. <laughs> so org on the front page, we have the Zoom link. And there's no passcode, there's just a number that you put into your Zoom. And if you don't know how to do Zoom and you want to participate in the peer support group, um, we have a place where it has the ambassadors. And my name's on there, Victoria Kelly. I don't know if yours is. But um, there are a lot of people all around the world now that have their phone numbers on there that you can call them up. And, and we'll guide you through on how to do Zoom or we'll guide you through on, you know, how to, you know, be a part of NASCA or or listen, you know, if you want to talk about something, or, you know, uh, we're here. That's why we got our names on the website, because that's what we want to do is help survivors and, and be there when they call, have somebody they could reach out to. So don't be afraid to reach out. We want to put our numbers on there if we don't want people to call us, you know. Yeah. The NASCA so website is people such say, a great "Are you sure you want to give out your number?" I'm like, "It's all, it's on the internet already." So it's not like, you know, because I I have to hand out my cards to people, and I usually hand them two cards, one for them, and they meet another survivor to pass it to them. They go, "Are you sure you want me to give your number out?" And I said, "I'll tell you what, my number's on the internet already." Yeah. Yeah. If you find a survivor and they need to talk to somebody, please give them my number. People are and they'll, they'll say how wonderful that is, how wonderful I am. And I go, you know what? I'm not doing anything more than what was done for me. 
given back what was given to me. And I was given support, and I want to give other people support. Yeah. So I, I feel the same I'm way like I have to give back. Yeah. And that's the thing that I tell people. You don't have to. It's a choice. You know, if you want and live a fantastic life and have the job of your dreams and get to go and do things that you want to do, that is enough. That is unfulfilled. But some of us do want to give, you know, our time and energy. We have it to give, mm-hmm. you know, and we put it in our skill to help out. And if anybody out there has, you know, even a small amount of time, once a month, you know, to, to help with mask over something, we have plenty of things that we can help have you get involved with, you know. We'd love to have you help. We appreciate all our volunteers. We've got quite a few volunteers and a whole bunch of members. I don't even know how many thousand members we have. You know, mm-hmm. it's a very big organization, and it's got so much on that website that that I have not even seen at all. And I've been involved with NASCAR for 15 years. Have you really? Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, I met Bill 15 years ago. I wasn't talking about child abuse then. I was ashamed because mm-hmm. I didn't see Paul at 21, and I had been blamed by a psychiatrist. And I had other people tell me, oh, when you turn 18, it should have stopped. I'm like, yeah, it should have, but it didn't, you know. And then they would blame yeah. me. So I started blaming myself. Hmm. Until I met Bill, you know, and he talked about, you know, grooming, you know, and, and being yeah. trapped in that and, you know, all and then I started talking about my experience. You know, and then he invited me on the radio show. And my first radio show is so much different. I'm at a radio show now, I think I cried through the whole thing, you know. Couldn't put a half yeah. the words together. So we want to invite all all survivors and then anybody that knows of any organization that helps adult children or that helps children that are abused, um, let somebody at NASCA know because we'd love to have them on the show. We we would love to yeah. have some more different guests on, you know, um, and and just don't call one of us or, you know, email one of us. Uh, Bill is, you know, oh, Bill Murray is the founder, and uh, he answers his own phone, and he gets emails all the time. And I just this one place that I was was called Crisis Nursery out here in Minneapolis. And what you could do is if you if you were struggling, you felt like, you know, you were just at your wit's end, you could call them up and bring your kids for two or three days there. And you could bring them just as they were. <laughs> Messy hair, dirty clothes, you know, crying, nice. wet diapers, whatever. And they would, like, take them in and clean them up and new diapers and be nur- totally nurturing. And you knew your kids were going to get taken care of for two or three days, you know. And you get them back and you felt better and they felt better and... So anyway, I called them up last week and asked them, you know, if they would come on now. So they're going to be coming on now, Scott, to the Black Dark Radio Show. So if Wonderful. you use your resources to help you out or professional or whatever, you know, um, just give us the information. Don't make the contact. You don't even have to make the contact. Just give us the information. I do cold calls. I don't care. I call people up, tell them what this is about. They really like to have you as a guest speaker. You know, if you find somebody on the Internet that you think might be a good fit, just I'm on uh, Facebook. Just message me, friend me, um, and let's all, you know, let's all work together uh, for mm-hmm. common, you know, 
well-being of, of children and adult survivors. And, and that's what we're about. You know, yep. and you don't have to be professional to help out with NASCA. You're a professional just by right. surviving. You know, and the fact that you survived is enough. <laughs> the fact that you're still living today sure. after surviving any abuse is a miracle in itself as far as I'm concerned. So everybody that's listening is a miracle that you're an adult survivor of child abuse. And even if you aren't, just anybody that's surviving, just this life is a miracle <laughs> in my book. It's true. It's so true, the fact that they're here at all. And yeah. Didn't, didn't give up. People. So many people, you know, a lot of yeah. people, they gave up and they killed themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't. Yeah. And they don't even call it, they don't even call it um, suicide anymore. They, they don't even say committed suicide. They call it died of suicide because it's like dying of cancer. It's a disease. You know, yeah. mental health is a disease, you know, with your brain. You're, you're hurting. I don't want to die. I just don't want to be in that pain anymore, the physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. And I didn't know any way right. out of it. You know, right. but, but when I felt I didn't want to die anymore. So yeah. I, I encourage people to have hope and know that things are going to be better, but you've got to believe that things are going to be better. And you've got yeah, to take those steps true. yourself. They really will. You know? Yeah. Yep. And, and make, you know, if, if you think, I wish I would do this, I wish I would do that, you know, in my situation, do it. Take a risk and do it. You know what I said? A half a block got me to going out for coffee with my, you know, just myself going out for a cup yep. of coffee. You know, when they say, how many are there? And, and I used to say, one. You know, like, like I was really guilty that was on me or where they get think it's just one person. Nobody wants to go to coffee, you know. And, and now I'm like, just one. It's me. <laughs> I get to be by myself. I go out alone, too. I know, and I have a really good time doing that. You know, a lot of times I'll bring stuff I'm working on, you know, and, or I'll bring my journal and start writing in it, or I'll just sit and relax, mm-hmm. you know, and go, I deserve this. I could never do yeah. that before. No, I, could never I couldn't even go into a restaurant hardly. I'd have to hide, you know. I was yeah. always so afraid yeah. of everyone. Yeah. So yeah. see how far... Just think of all the risk you had to take to get to the point you're at that you could do that. Yes. And it was hard and there was suffering, but there is hope. Yeah. There is hope right. at the end for sure. Yeah. And every time you take a risk, you might come home and go, well, that was really hard, but, you know, I did it. And, and I'm going to do it again because yeah. I want to get yeah. past the sphere, you know, or, or I want to have a better life or I want to be happier, you know, and just think about what kind of things make you happy? And if you can't even think of anything, think of, you know, something that you've always wanted to do. And it doesn't have to be like a trip to Europe. It could be like, God, I really like to go for a walk in the woods. You know, it's such a beautiful day. And instead of, you know, not doing that and thinking I have to do housework, get up and go for that walk in the woods. Or get up and, mm-hmm. you know, um, go buy yourself some flowers, you know. I wish I had somebody that would give me mm-hmm. flowers. Why wait? Go get your own. You know? Get yourself stuff. <laughs> you know? It's a small reward. Like, yes. you know, going to the Dollar Tree and buying yourself some little cute thing to put on your desk for a buck and a quarter. You know? 
do yep. something for yourself. Do something positive every single day. Do something to make you happy. And sometimes you really got to look hard to figure out something that is going to bring us happiness. Because happiness is not mm-hmm. just like an all-around state. You know, joy isn't just, I wish I felt happy all the time. Well, nobody's going to feel happy all the time. So you really got to look for things. What's going to make me happy in this moment right now? And stay in the moment. Yeah. Yesterday is history. Live in the present, they say. Yep, yep. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. And today is the present. That's what I call our present is because it's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to, when I say live in the present, I always think of a house with a big bow on it. Yep. We're yep. about done with our show. I just got the 90-second oh, warning. So <laughs> I just want to wrap it up and say thank, thank you, you to Victoria Kelly for being here tonight. And I have been and continue to be Annie. And it was a pleasure to be on the show tonight. This has been Scan Radio Show number 3117. And uh I'm going to turn the music on and say have a really great evening. Thank you.